Hi, this is Ben Lowell with Back to the Bible Canada and Dr. John Newfeld. We're continuing our series today, The Triumph of the Lamb, the study in Revelation, and we'll be looking at Revelation chapter 5, verses 6 to 10, with a message entitled, Worthy is His Sacrifice. something incongruous about the Christian faith, and I'll bet you've noticed it many times. We proclaim Jesus as Lord and God, and yet we do all this while the symbol of our faith is a cross. And this from the outset certainly seems ridiculous. In his book on the cross of Jesus, the late John Stott wrote, and I quote, The cross of Jesus, now the universal symbol of Christianity, was at first avoided for its shameful association with the execution of the common criminal. Indeed, Stott points out that a great many well-known figures in recent history have found the cross to be sheer folly. He quotes the atheist philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, who called Christ on the cross, God of the sick, God as spider, God on the cross. He quotes Sir Alfred Ayer, who is an Oxford scholar, who because of the cross called Christianity the worst of all religions. But there's more. When Jesus stood before Pontius Pilate, as recorded in John 18.33 and following, Pilate asked Jesus if he was the king of the Jews, and the question was all but preposterous. I mean, after all, it was the Jewish religious leaders who had handed Jesus over to the Roman authorities. And if Jesus was the king of the Jews, well, he clearly had no military. He had no ability to project power or to command his will. All he had was a band of powerless followers, mostly from Galilee. Indeed, Jesus appeared before Pilate in a humiliated state. And yet, Jesus pronounces that he indeed is a king, although his kingdom is not of this world. But what kind of a king is that? What kind of a king is so easily captured by his enemies, so thoroughly mocked, so easily crucified on a Roman cross with his followers turning tail and running for their lives? What kind of king is this when his followers claim that his greatest accomplishment was to hang on that cross? And how is he the king of kings and the Lord of lords? It is with this in mind that we come to Revelation chapter 5, verses 6 to 10. We've been studying the book of Revelation, and as we saw in our last study, Jesus is proclaimed as the greatest conquering king. He alone is worthy to open the scroll, bringing history to its consummation and ushering in the kingdom of God. Yet, against the picture of utter worthiness and complete power and authority comes the next image in Revelation. John has just been told that the Lion of Judah has conquered. And he looks in the direction of the one who is able to take the scroll and open it. So let's read our text. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you've made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Now, from this passage, I want us to see three important things. First, I want us to see the picture of the suffering Jesus. 
And second, I want us to see how his suffering has given him great authority. And third, that the suffering of Jesus inspires worship in heaven. Well, let's take it one step at a time. Let's start with a picture of the suffering of Christ. In the early part of chapter 5, the great drama was the drama that surrounded the presentation of a book or a scroll, which represented the fulfillment of history and the consummation of the kingdom of God. The scroll represented the defeat of evil with the final outcome that every square centimeter of this earth would be full of the glory of God. This scroll is the utter and complete triumph of God. And then, having presented us with that picture, Revelation 5 announced that Jesus alone was worthy to break the seal and the scroll and to open it, and thus he alone can fulfill the contents of the book and bring history to its conclusion. In the early part of the chapter, he was called the Lion of the tribe of Judah and the Root of David, and both are images that call to mind a great conqueror and a victor in war. And then, as we come to the middle of the chapter, we come to the revelation that the Lion of Judah is, in fact, a lamb. And if that's not enough, the lamb looks like it's had its throat cut. The ESV reads, as though it had been slain, which could also be translated as, as though it had been slaughtered. You know, when lambs were slaughtered in the Old Testament in the sacrificial system, the priest would cut their throats and drain out their blood. Of course, as you know, even if you had no dealings with lambs in the past, lambs are helpless. And in the process of slitting their throats and sacrificing them, no resistance is met. It is an easy thing to do. And here we see the paradox. The slain or the slaughtered lamb is standing in heaven as all the focus of heaven is fixed on him. And as you know, a slaughtered lamb doesn't stand. Indeed, dead things don't stand. But Jesus does, and this is certainly an allusion to his resurrection from the dead. And yet, having been raised and having been glorified, he's still presented in heaven as the slaughtered lamb. The image of Jesus as the lamb comes essentially from two Old Testament passages. The first is the picture of the Passover found in Exodus 12. At Passover, God delivered Israel from the angel of death by commanding them to slaughter a lamb at twilight and to take its blood and mark their doorways with it. Exodus 12:13 says, "The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague shall befall you or to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt." Now the second is the one image that comes from Isaiah 53. Verse 7 says, "He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter." And like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And that is the lamb offers no resistance. There's no painful bleeding. It simply awaits the knife. Now I know that the Jewish rabbis had no worldview that allowed for a suffering Messiah. For them, the Messiah crushes evil. He is not crushed by evil. And yet, as John recorded earlier in his book, that is the Gospel of John, in chapter 1, verse 29, we read, The next day he, and by he it refers to John the Baptist, who's the forerunner of the Messiah. So, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And of course, that is the Gospel. See, in order for Christ to purchase men and women for God, as Jesus says, recorded in Luke 24, verse 26, it was necessary for the Christ to suffer. Well, most of us who are believers understand that. 
It might, however, surprise us that in the courts of heaven, where all the power and authority of the universe flows from the throne, that the conquering Christ would be presented as a slaughtered lamb. See, every once in a while, people ask the question, does Jesus still have the marks or the scars of his crucifixion in heaven? Well, John 20, verse 27, records Jesus proving to his disciples that it was really he who was raised from the dead. And verse 27 says, then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it into my side. Please understand that Jesus was not deceiving his disciples. That's precisely what his resurrected body now looks like. It has nail marks and a slice in his side where the spear went in. He bears the marks of his slaughter. Imagine that. You know, people will often ask, what will happen to me in the resurrection? Will I still bear my old scars? And the answer is, no, you won't. But Jesus, for all eternity, will bear the scars that he took for you. See, the image of Jesus in glory is an image that still reminds us of a slaughtered lamb. See, I want you to imagine what that must have meant for the seven churches of Revelation who read this passage. They're facing the imperial might of Rome. They're persecuted. They're threatened with economic reprisals. They're encouraged to engage in sexual immorality like the rest of the Roman world. So from their vantage point, Rome looked so powerful, and they, well, they looked like lambs taken out to a Roman slaughterhouse. But the perfect Lamb of God won the greatest of all victories by being taken out to a slaughterhouse. And that's why all the followers of Jesus need never fear when it looks to us that our situation seems so powerless. The great incongruity is that the powerful of this world will fall and they will fall before Jesus. But as Jesus said, the meek will inherit the earth. And even more incongruous, is that the one in heaven who has authority to bring all history to its appointed hour, the great lion of Judah is in fact the slaughtered lamb standing at the center of the attention of heaven. What an amazing portrait. We've just returned from a two-week ministry trip to India. The highlight was the Bible teaching conferences facilitated in partnership with Back to the Bible India under the direction of Dr. John Newfeld. Each conference was attended by pastors and lay leaders in Hyderabad, Pune, and surrounding communities, and each was filled to capacity. The thirst and enthusiasm to gain the skills for effectively preaching and teaching the Word of God was so evident as we interacted with the pastors. God was and is doing a great thing, and we're blessed to be a part of it. But this could not have been accomplished without the commitment and financial support of our international partners across Canada. What a blessing. Now we begin planning additional conferences in Delhi and again in Hyderabad, and your continued financial support for the conferences would mean so much. To support this international effort, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us online at backtothebible.ca. John notices that the slaughtered lamb has seven horns. You know, I began by saying in Revelation 5, 6 to 10, that it presents us with three very important things. First, it presents us with a picture of the sufferings of Jesus. And now we're ready for the second truth. Revelation 5 wants us to see how the sufferings of Jesus have given him great authority. Look again at the latter part of verse 6. I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes. 
Now, we've noticed how often the number seven comes up in Revelation, and we've noticed that the number seven speaks either of perfection or of completeness. But what is the image of the horns? If we go ahead to Revelation 12, we get a picture of a dragon who represents Satan, and this dragon has seven heads and ten horns. Now, I'm going to wait until chapter 12 to explain that vision, but for now, simply notice the horns. And if we go forward to chapter 13, verse 1, we read, And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads. The beast refers to the servant of the dragon, or to put it plainly, it refers to the Antichrist. He also has horns. In verse 4 of that chapter, we read that the dragon gave his authority to the beast, and that's the idea. Without going into the details of why ten horns and what the heads represent, of one thing we can be sure. The horns represent authority. They also represent power. They're a symbol of strength. And the question is not that ten horns might be better than seven. The question is all about the meaning of the symbols. Seven is the number of perfection. And so when we're told in Revelation 5 verse 6 that the slaughtered lamb has seven horns, we are to take from that that the slaughtered lamb has complete and absolute power and authority. His power is overwhelming, and none has greater power than the one with seven horns. But what are the seven eyes? Well, John explains that to us. The eyes are the seven spirits of God that are sent out into all the earth. Now, as we've already seen, the seven spirits, well, that's a reference to the Holy Spirit in all his fullness. And so the one who has absolute power has given the Holy Spirit whom he sends out to the earth. Now, just to be clear. When everyone starts to worship in heaven, they worship because the Lamb has ransomed people for God. In the book of John, chapter 16, Jesus promises the coming of the Holy Spirit, whom he calls the Helper. Verse 8 says, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. So it's clear that Jesus died so that he might purchase his elect for God, but the elect would never come in if the Holy Spirit did not draw men and women to God. And so that's the picture in Revelation 5. It's the picture of the slaughtered lamb who not only purchases men and women for God, but also draws them by the power of his Holy Spirit. Now, having followed the image thus far, what happens next is all the reason in the world for worship. Revelation 5, 7 says, And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. Now you've got the image of the scene that John saw. He saw the one seated on the throne, surrounded by a sea of glass, powerful lightning and thunder emanating from the throne, four living creatures crying out, Holy, holy, holy. And then around that scene, 24 elders seated on thrones, falling down to worship the one who's on the throne. And then the slaughtered lamb walks past the elders, past the living creatures, crosses the sea of crystal glass, walks right up to the throne, and takes the scroll from the hand of the one seated on it. And no one says, well, wait a minute. Now, that's God, and the sea of glass demonstrates that, that he alone is holy, and no one may approach him. Indeed, the lamb approaches as if it's his right to do this at any time. And what is the response of the four living creatures and the 24 elders? After he took the scroll from the one seated on the throne, they fall down before the Lamb. Just one chapter ago, we saw them falling down in worship before the one who is on the throne, which is an act of worship. Indeed, in the book of Revelation, every single act of falling down is an act of worship. Now, with that in mind, 
Let's go ahead to Revelation 19, verses 9 and 10. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I, writes John, fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. See, that incident is so telling. To fall down before a human being or an angelic being and to worship that which is created, that's sacrilege. Instead, worship God. Now, this is so telling. In heaven, when the slaughtered lamb Jesus approaches the throne, takes the scroll from the hands of God, the commanders of the hosts of the Lord's armies fall down to worship the lamb in the very same way as they have worshiped the one who is seated on the throne. Listen to what Jesus said, and it's recorded in John 5, 22 to 23. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Now, when Jesus said, whoever does not honor the Son, in this context, he clearly means whoever does not honor the Son just as they honor the Father. If they fail to pay the Son the same honor that they give to the Father, then they fail to honor the Father as well. And that, my dear friend, is crucial. If today you think of Jesus as a great moral teacher, and you think you're paying him a compliment when you say that, listen, you're not complimenting him at all. If today you think of Jesus as a great prophet and fail to offer him your worship as equal to that of the Father, then you have no place among those in heaven. For the host of heaven, as they see the Son taking the scroll, offer to the Son the same honor as they offer to the Father. Let me put that as plainly as I can, just in case you still don't get it. Until you fall on your face before Jesus as your Lord and your God, you have no place in heaven. But our scene in Revelation 5 is still not done. The 24 elders, as they fall down before the lamb that was slaughtered, are holding two things in their hands. The first is a harp. Read through the Psalms and you'll always find that the harp is an instrument of worship. So, for instance, in Psalm 33, verses 2 and 3, Give thanks to the Lord with a lyre, make melody to him with a harp of ten strings, sing to him a new song, play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. And so in one hand, the elders hold harps which are intended to make their worship of Jesus as Lord and God ever so much richer. And in the other hand, they're holding bowls full of incense. John immediately tells us what this signifies. The bowls are the prayers of the saints. Would you notice that the word saints is here a very important word? If you're accustomed to thinking of the saints as extraordinary Christians who have lived better than average lives, please, please jettison that idea immediately. Over and over again in Revelation, the saints are all the people of God. It's a reference to the church. Furthermore, it's not just true in Revelation. It's also true in all the letters of Paul. See, when Paul writes the various churches, he uses the word saints for them all. For instance, listen to 1 Corinthians 1 verse 2. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. And so when the elders hold the prayers of the saints, they're holding the prayers of the seven churches on earth, and they're holding the prayers of all God's people of all times, his church on earth. So imagine the scene. 
In some way, the angelic beings are assisting the prayers of the church of Jesus as their prayers are rising before God. And why are these prayers presented here? Because Jesus was slaughtered on our behalf. Our prayers on earth are presented before God and they are heard. And all of heaven worships the Father and the Son. It's a lovely picture. It reminds all of us that when we pray to God, our prayers, every one of them are being heard because Christ died on our place. And with that is the picture that the one who was sacrificed and purchased men and women for God is the very same one who rules over all. His authority over the nations is also authority to bring history of the human race to its point of climax. It's an authority that he has attained through his crucifixion on the cross. He is fully equal to the Father. He is fully worthy of heaven's worship because he was slain. The lion of the tribe of Judah is also the slaughtered lamb. And as a slaughtered lamb, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. Heavenly Father, help us to do exactly what Christ taught us to do, that we would honor the Son even as we honor the Father. So may it be. Amen. John, I'm, I'm so taken up in this message and in this passage and, uh, and, and how we ought to be worshiping uh, the, the Lamb. And, but I also recognize how incongruous it really is. It's sort of outside of, of what we would think would be true. But again, the other thing I, I, I think and I want to ask you about is that, you know, this, this book of Revelation is, is so much more than about future things. It's about who Christ is for us today. You know, the book of Revelation really is, uh, you know, by the Holy Spirit's role in the placement of that book placed last in our Bible because it, in a beautiful way, summarizes the entire biblical account. And it surely brings to a head the entire New Testament message of the Lordship of Jesus. And so, I, I, Ben, you, I think you've really put your finger on what, to me, has been my greatest concern as we start to study Revelation, that we would get so caught up in all of the different theories that we have of Revelation without seeing what John actually saw. That is, Christ in his death on the cross fulfilled the promise of the Father, has given us new life, created a church, and provided for us this assurance that all authority and honor belong to the one seated on the throne. Thanks for your message today, John. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Let me share with you a few comments from our listeners. This is one of the most insightful and fulfilling studies I have ever heard in my life. Another, I'm a pastor and I've been listening to Back to the Bible podcast since the fall. I'm very thankful to be able to listen to the daily podcast and have my own life and ministry enriched with excellent teaching that Dr. Neufeld provides. And thank you at Back to the Bible for all the amazing work you do. You've helped my walk more than you'll ever know. What a great encouragement. And it reminds us to say thank you. Your prayers and financial support, your commitment makes all our Bible teaching ministries possible and available to anyone thirsting to hear. Please continue to partner with us. Together, lives are being encouraged and changed. Offer your generous support today by calling 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.